Today we're going to talk about The Witch of Endor, part three of our discussion. Let's go. Hey there, I'm Thomas. And I'm Sam. And this is the Silent Planet Podcast. Today, um, we're going to continue our discussion and close um, with our Witch of Endor, I guess, series now. I've been avoiding saying series the past two episodes, but it's become three, so. Yeah, yeah. it's a trilogy now. Trilogy. (laughs) (laughs) The threequel. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and this, there isn't, there isn't a whole lot of follow-up to do with the witch part of it and the Endor uh, series. Um, so this may get more into the the next topic here, which is still this idea of um, of what paranormal, um, but not so much ghosts, more of uh, bringing the dead to mm-hmm. life, right? More of a night of the living dead. Um, I'm thinking most of the content that we'll cover probably is more of that yeah. at this point. But we do want to close off first. Um, with uh, that, the the story specifically looking at um, that this prophecy that Samuel delivers does actually come about to pass. Yeah, right? and ju- um, just as like a recap, right for right. for those because that's the thing is this is coming every week, so you might not have just listened to the last episode. But recap: um, Saul is trying to get a hold of God. God's not responding. So uh, in previous parts, God told him to wipe out and get rid of all of these mediums and necromancers. And instead, since he's not getting a response, um, he's actually asking God for his uh, advice and assistance on what he should do with the Philistine army. It's freaking him out. He doesn't know. He's not getting the answer. So he goes and seeks out a medium to contact Samuel, who's been deceased. Um, And the medium brings Samuel up. Samuel comes and and is actually kind of upset with him, um, but basically says, no, God's your enemy now. He's, you know, he's turned, you've turned your back on him, made him your enemy, all this stuff. And here next day, you know, or I guess by this time tomorrow, you and your sons are going to be with me. You're going to die. So, um, that's kind of where we're at. Saul, uh, falls. It says he on in verse 20, uh, of first Samuel 28 says, um, Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. Strength is gone. Um, he'd eaten nothing. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. Uh, the medium that was, that I guess performed for them or brought Samuel up. Um, she feeds him and his servants and yes. actually quite a, quite a spread she makes for them. And she's very, very apologetic, or at least, um, she, she appeals to the fact that Paul had given her a vow, mm-hmm. right? That, that no harm would come to her. Yeah. Because it, as you mentioned here in your, in your recap, which was very good, that was thorough. That was excellent. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, that was very, very good. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Sam. That that uh, uh, Saul's job was to get rid of these these mediums. He was supposed to put them to death. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, but he does push them out of Israel. Right. Yeah. So, um, so she's already put her life on the line by doing this in the first place, and is very cautious as she goes into this. She even questions him, thinking he's just somebody because he shows up in disguise. He could be anybody. Um, so she already has questioned him when he comes in. Now, I know that this is, um, you know, a, a dangerous endeavor mm-hmm. for the sake of the the king will come and kill me if I do this. Yeah. You know, and so he, in disguise, has, has vowed that she's not to be harmed. And then, of course, it becomes evident to her, 
oh, he's the king that I'm afraid of, right? So a uh, precarious position for her to be in. She reminds him a few times uh, about this vow that he's made. And, yes, she insists that he get some food, and she's trying to get him out quickly, <laughs> Yeah. right? But uh, in that process, um, um, when he agrees to eat and his servants also kind of join her in this, they think, yeah, we think this is a good idea, uh, Saul, if you'll have some food, that uh, she doesn't just um, give him something simply and push him out the door, but that she prepares the fattened calf for him. And right? makes unleavened bread. And unleavened bread. So she's she's... You know, so clean, cooking or I guess killing and like slaughtering and cleaning a, a cow or this, a calf. This person, and we don't know what you know uh, nationality she is. It's it's safe to assume she's probably pagan because why would an Israelite know how to do this stuff? Yeah, right. That's probably a pagan practice. Um, if she was Israelite, then she didn't hardly act like one. She was essentially an Israelite who wished they were pagan because she'd taken all this time to practice this um, uh, pagan ritual of talking to the dead. So um, either way, she's essentially a pagan, but yet she makes this kosher meal, mm-hmm. right? Perfect Jewish meal, <laughs> right? Fancy, but, you know, we're... We're we're doing it just the correct way here yeah. before she sends Paul on her way. Uh, Saul. Or Saul sends Saul on his way. Um, so they they do eat and he doesn't hurt her. He leaves. Um, he's of course crushed by this information. Uh, at that point in the story, it kind of skips and we get more of what's going on with David mm-hmm. in his campaign, so to speak. But once you get to chapter 31, we go back to Israel and we get back to Saul and what's going on um, here with he and his kids and this arm, this uh, battle with the Philistines. So in 31, it starts um, now the in chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on the Mount of Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadad, and, um, well, all the sons of Saul were killed. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men that day together. There you go. Samuel was right. Samuel (laughs) called it. Now some people will say, that um, it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because ultimately Saul died on the battlefield, but he kills himself. And, mm-hmm. and so the assumption there is, well, if he hadn't killed himself, but it's also pretty clear when he's hit by the archers, it's... A, it's it says a, they wounded him critically. This is the NIV, at least, over yeah, my side. It's it's a severe wound. He probably wasn't getting off that battlefield. Well, and it's it's not as if he was trying to fulfill the prophecy anyway. I mean, why would he want to fulfill that first off? Second off, um, 
you know, he says for his armor bearer or servant, whoever is with him, you know, to kill me because I don't want to, I don't want them to kill me. Right. Because he knew he's, he's already accepted. He knew he was going to die. Right. So self-fulfilling, that's, that's just beating around the bush. I think I feel like just arguing for the sake of it, you know, yeah. like making an argument for no reason. Yeah. No, I don't think there's a lot of, um, uh, strength in that position. Again, it gets back to that. Well, in this entire story, was this particular lady uh, drawing up the actual ghost, mm-hmm. right? Because the larger question that we're dealing with is, do ghosts exist? Can we have this interaction with the paranormal? Mm-hmm. And we really don't have a lot of evidence that that is possible except this one story. And that's yeah. why we've you know done, tried to do our diligence in actually approaching this story for well, the you, larger you know question the of ghosts. Yeah, you got to know. Yeah. Why. You can't just read that Saul. You need to know why Saul was going to to the medium in the first place, and then yeah. what actually happens after. Because that's the thing is that once again in the last episode we had talked about the idea that um, Samuel was not actually Samuel; it was a demon or mm-hmm. or Satan or whatever. But I mean, if that's the case, then how come this prophecy came true? And then once again, since when are demons and Satan in the business of you know fulfilling prophecies? Right, right. You not know? lying about it instead, right? Uh, so yeah, there's not a good, I don't think that's a good, um, case to make that it wasn't actually Samuel. I think we've got an interaction that was, uh, similar to when he was alive. Samuel didn't beat around the bush when Saul came to him. He called him on his, um, baloney, which Saul would tend to do. It was always like, um, we're going to do what God says, but only about 90% at best. Yeah. There's always some, some form of compromise that Saul was making, right? Whether that was we're going to keep some of the goods when we go defeat this uh, enemy or there's just always something that... that I always find that interesting. You know, like if in today... I know uh, maybe it's just because I'm... I live in today's day and age, right? And we don't get a lot of communication, like legit communication from God. Um, Not the same way they had it back then, right? So maybe it's just because I'm, you know used to this, but I feel like if the creator of the universe just opened up the skies and started talking to me or, you know what I mean? I, I would be pretty, Oh, he, he said do, to do this. And I don't care what the general population thinks about it because I heard a voice from <laughs> yeah. and tell me to do it. I'm going to go do it. Like I wouldn't question it or, you know, do, you know, 90%. So it's, it's crazy to me, but then again, I mean, maybe this is kind of harking back to the, you know, I guess behavior a child and their father has, if yeah. he's used to God talking to him all the time, then maybe it's just the same as when I was a kid and, you know, grab the candy bar from the store and try to hide it under my shirt. And walk yeah. Out, you it, know? it seems to me that when, when you're living in an age where we would love to hear, um, an undisputable voice from heaven or have someone that we know comes with the authority of God, someone who is acting as the prophet, uh, someone who is delivering a message and then at the same time confirming it with miracle that that uh, they could tell us, thus saith the Lord, and we would know we're getting it you know, from the source mm-hmm. and, and be able to act upon that. We don't have something like that today. You know, they'll say we have the counsel of the Holy Spirit, but there's also a whole lot of second guessing yeah. in that process, and we don't get um, the a good... Word from God comes from confirmation of several people that you would trust in that and, and kind of a feeling in your spirit that uh, the course of action that you're pursuing is the right course of action. But there's still, how nice would it be 
Yeah. To just have somebody be able to say, here's someone you can trust. You know this is someone who's um, uh, speaking on God's behalf. They're doing miraculous stuff, and they're saying, thus saith the Lord, this is what he wants you to do, and you could just go do that. Mm-hmm. You know, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> you know, that be nifty. It, it sure would help, and and I think that uh, is part of why there's so much criticism in this instance um, when someone acting as the king, when they have access to this, don't follow what the prophet's telling them to do. Well, it's not like they need anything. Yeah, you're the king for for God's sakes. Like, I mean, you don't need. You know, you're not like starving every night. You're not like sleeping in the cold. Right. You know what I mean? So And here you know. have access to uh the 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 prophet and, and one of the other instances with Saul, he just simply got um uh he was waiting for Samuel to arrive so they could burn incense, whatever, mm-hmm. um, before he went into this particular battle and he got impatient. Yeah. So he decided he was going to burn incense himself before Samuel arrives. So um, it, it's with Saul, it's it's kind of like it's hard to give him any um, to feel sorry for him, mm-hmm. right? I, his his um, uh, in so much as being impatient, we all kind of are impatient now and then, right? In so much as wanting to compromise on things, we all kind of want to do that. But at the same time, it's hard for me to have a whole lot of um, uh, compassion for uh, Saul because I'm like, yeah, but you've also had access to something I don't. Mm-hmm. I can't go to the prophet of God and say, you know, I've got this particular question about what I should do with my life or um, the uh, 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 real. I have to go to the council of um, church elders and people I respect and I'll um I will take that with the authority of God, mm-hmm. but wouldn't it be nice to have the prophet who could also say, "Oh yeah," and here's a little other note as you could pursue this course, um, prophetically speaking, you're going to run into trouble a few places, <laughs> and, yeah. let, and let kind of warn you, and that's because that's the other job that the prophet did. Yeah, you're going to go into battle, and here's warning, right? Um, so it it's hard to have a whole lot of uh uh it, you would think that there's a certain amount of judgment and justice on the other side to that mm-hmm. right uh Jesus talks about um when he's approaching the uh people of his own people right he's he's teaching and preaching in synagogues and stuff like that and um, he's being rejected in some cases and accepted in others. But as as people are running these questions to him, he's he said, you need to understand that um, even places like Sodom and Gomorrah, if they had had an opportunity to talk to the Messiah, they would have turned. They yeah. would have repented. And uh, at the end of days, here you have the opportunity to speak with and meet with the Messiah and you reject him, that generation of Sodom and Gomorrah will judge you because they didn't have that opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? There's that little sense of um, we're somehow responsible for the amount of revelation that we have access to, which makes the people in Jesus' day and in the early church where they still had the apostles, it makes them a little bit more, they're under a, a higher expectation of responsibility because they have access yeah. to, to that level of revelation, right? 
maybe the counter to it is though, I mean, think about it like this. So everybody who who makes like less than you know sixty thousand a year, seventy thousand, anybody who was under that, they're always like, you know, if I won the lottery, if I won six hundred million dollars and paid taxes and came out with like eighty million dollars, right? I would uh, I would pay off all my debts and buy myself a house, and then I would just live off of interest and set the money in an account or whatever. But all too often, we see when they do win the lottery and get to this like peak of financial stability, the ideal situation, uh, six months down the road, they're addicted to cocaine and they're in in way too much debt. They go, they go absolutely nuts. It's because the heart of man is corrupt. Right. That's, and I guess maybe that's ultimately the, the issues that we're, we see with Saul, right? Oh yeah. It's just, you know, you might have access to the source and we, we, it's easy for us to kind of sit back and be like, you know, he really blew his shot. But at the same time, Mm, would we act so different? And the when David receives this, um, we're not going to bother looking necessarily into that because that gets outside the story too, but it's one of those, I think, harder points in Scripture. Uh, somebody reports to David um, news, and it's not good news, but it is good news, right? Uh, Saul's been trying to kill him. Mm. He's, he's kind of leading a rebellion, and he knows he's supposed to be king, but he wants that to happen the right way and in God's time. So someone brings him the news, hey, guess what? Good news, Saul's dead, so that means you're up, right? Your turn. You get to be king now. And, of course, in that uh, process of delivering that message, he also mentions that Saul's sons are dead too, and David had this like close friendship with Jonathan. So he that immediately kind of crushes him that Jonathan's been killed. That's not good news yeah. as far as he's concerned. But upon receiving this news, he kills the messenger mm. because the messenger delivers it in such a way of, hey, David, good news. Saul's dead. And David's like, hmm, that's not good news as far as he was concerned. Yeah. And and especially that Jonathan was dead as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't know that that's one of the high points for David in his career either, that he killed the messenger. Um, but he killed him because when he delivered that message, he delivered it in such a way as to be like... Dude, I, I, it's, it's strange to me. People, there's always this misconception that all of these good, quote-unquote good or main characters of the Bible are always good guys. Right. David no, made mistakes. Not. We're all we're all human beings. And yeah. Then, yeah, that's the thing is I mean, that's <laughs> bloodshed because of bad news. Yeah. That's yeah. not a good that you shouldn't be clapping him on the back, you well, know. And incidentally, when it came down to it, um, what David wanted once he had a kingdom and everything was set and he even built himself a palace and all was right with the world, so to speak, is he wanted to build a place for God. He wanted a, a temple, right? Mm-hmm. And, and God makes it clear, you know, this is what the temple's going to look like. It kind of gives David the the ground plans for it all. He gets to see the architectural drawings, so to speak. But he says, you don't get to build it. You won't see this in, <clears throat> in your lifetime because your lifetime's too full of blood. There's too much blood on your hands yeah. for you to be the one who builds my temple. So, yeah, David wasn't um, perfect uh, in by any stretch, and and so he's he's there's a few marks against him, and I I would consider that one of those marks is that he kills the messenger, because um, he of how the message is delivered, yeah, right, um, 
that was the messenger's job <laughs> to deliver it. He just uh, misunderstood that he should have delivered it in such a way as to be giving him the facts, but uh, not treating it as good news or bad news. Imagine you're like going to the office and you uh, you run this report and you think the numbers are good and you walk up to your supervisor and you're like, hey, good news, we, we made all this profit over here. And they're like, no, that's bad because we just yanked from the, the wrong stocks or whatever. And mm-hmm. then they just pull out a gun and shoot you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> that would be that's bad the equivalent, day. right? Well, yeah. not really. I make it maybe gets more of a military <laughs> aspect, but still, it's a little overboard. Right, exactly. But, uh, so th- that that's where um, the story of Saul ends and his family, and uh, it comes at the hands of here's somebody who was um, anointed to be king over Israel, mm-hmm. and this is his end that he's. He's brought to a place where he's even willing to go to a, a, a necromancer, a, a source, sorceress, and ask her to bring up the ghost yeah. of the prophet. Like, it, he, how far you've fallen yeah, at you've, that particular You try point. to picture this in, in standpoint of like a movie or something like that. If you were watching this on TV, it'd be a really wild show. Yeah. Like, this isn't just... That's the thing. Don't like. Don't look at the text and just be like, "Oh, this is the Bible. I'm reading that." Like, think about it in other terms. Be more creative with it, and it it's nuts. It's yeah. completely off the rails. It's yeah. really crazy stuff. You definitely have a different person at this arc of the story, right? Yeah. Than, than you were introduced to when we're introduced to Saul. He's a very different person than who he ultimately um, at at <laughs> at what could have been a height he's reduced to this person who's willing to go to um, look, seek out the council of ghosts and falls on his own sword. And, you know, it, it's not a happy ending for sure um, yeah. for, for Saul. So, um, so that's the case of uh, Saul and the witch of Endor and our, probably our only account of, of, uh, appearance of a ghost here in the Bible. Um, however, 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 um, there's we, another spooky situation. Yeah. yeah we right? have another spooky situation too. The issue with the ghost is you've got a spirit who is disembodied, right? And that's kind of even hard for us to wrap our minds around it. That's one of the things that makes it so spooky. Mm-hmm. Where is this thing at? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't actually have a body. It doesn't, occupy a set space there's no no mass to Mm -hmm. it right so this otherly thing that could potentially harm you could be anywhere right that's how it makes for such a good story right ghost stories um but what if you had instead again and this is still very very you know uh um otherworldly very uh paranormal but you have the idea of a spirit that is embodied put back into a body that has died already, right? And in this instance, been dead for a while. So not like someone bringing the dead back to life, and it's like a very, very good thing when, and that happens actually several times in the Bible. Jesus does it at least three times in his ministry. Um, We see um, Elijah and Elisha um, do these great works. In fact, that's kind of like the mark of a prophet, 
when they're bringing somebody back to the dead, that's like, okay, you're in top 10 now, (laughs) right? You, you get top shelf. You're about to retire. (laughs) Yeah. If you're bringing people back to the dead, then, then, you know, and I, that was, um, one of the reasons why I think we see it in the ministry of Jesus too, that here is someone who's come, who is even greater than if his whole ministry happened and you never had him, uh, raising the widow's son, um, which we see in Luke, uh, we've got Lazarus, right? If if we didn't have these like him raising people from the dead, you, the the there's one case where there's a centurion services uh, servant is sick, but we have then a similar case where he's going to a man whose daughter um, is sick but dies as they're on their way there, mm-hmm. right? That's where you get those two stories that kind of intertwine and the lady uh, uh, who had a hemorrhaging problem and who reaches out and touches his co- uh, cloak and she's healed of the hemorrhage, that whole interaction happens as they're on the way to heal this other young girl, and when they get there, she's dead. So you have um, three accounts for sure within the ministry of Jesus where he raises somebody who has died, mm-hmm. but they've died relatively recently. Right, the longest amount of time you have is probably Lazarus, and they said it was like three days or so that yeah. he'd been dead. Um, and and they even mention when he says, you know, we're going to roll the stone away or we're going to open this tomb, and his sister says, you know, he's not going to, he's going to smell terrible. <laughs> he's been dead in there for three days. Right? They say in the King James, it says he stinketh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's you a, know. That's something we uh, laughed at at our Bible study. Uh, Julie and I came back and. Uh, the Carters, Leslie uh-huh. and Chris, they say, thou stinketh. Yeah. Just thought, I mean, it's just so funny. Yeah. But it's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. When that's what death, death is this, um, um, we, we try and ease it and make it look like a sleep, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you've got a situation, someone dies, they're able to have an open casket, whatever. And they, but someone went to a lot of trouble to make this corpse, Presentable. Presentable in a way that, and, and it's a noble job to attempt to do that because that helps uh, a family kind of let go, Yeah, you know, um, to see them as you remember them and to see them in a state where it just looks like they're resting, looks like they're sleeping, right? But um, if you really spend the time to look closely at that, you know, person, you can tell the difference between a sleep an actual death. There's something that's just simply um, uh, ab- ab- about death that that's grotesque. Yeah. Right. And you can't get past that. So um, in these instances, the longest a case being three days, Jesus is bringing Lazarus back, but the effects of that death still hold. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't have in Scripture it say, okay, Lazarus came out of the tombs. He was shrouded in all this like burial garb. And he pulled it all off, and he didn't look like somebody who just walked out of Came the tomb. bursting out like an Old Spice commercial. Yeah, yeah. no, he did not. <laughs> Smelling fresh and clean. Exactly. <laughs> we get the sense that the effects of death were still kind of, you know, yeah. the, though life had come back into him, his this corpse had been reana- reanimated, um, it was still there. So what happens then if the spirit of someone already dead comes back to a body that they've left a long time ago 
and it gets up and starts walking around. Which is where we're at here. Matthew 27 gives us our Night of the Living Dead situation. Night of the Living Dead in Matthew. So it's uh, Matthew 27, and I'm going to start at verse 49 is where I'll start. This is Jesus is being crucified. He's on the cross right now. And this is, this is basically right when he dies, but, um, 40, 49. So it says, but the rest of them said, uh, let us see whether Elijah will come, uh, to save him. And then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So that's the moment he passes. Uh, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which that's a pretty intense feat in itself. Um, and then the earth shook and the rocks were split. Uh, but then 52, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Yep. There it is. Spooky. That's it too. I didn't see that in the passion. That's all (laughs) we get out of this. And this is very, very interesting because um, up to that point, if you cross reference the, the death of Jesus in, in Matthew and Mark, they're almost identical, Mm -hmm. right? In, in Luke, also very, very similar, right? Just some slight, they, there's a little more information because Luke's taking these eyewitness accounts, and, and, and so he's got, but it's, it's still very, very close. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, even in John, you get very similar kind of uh, how things are happening, and John's writing after the fact and trying to give us information that the other Gospels um, didn't give us as it's later, or written mm-hmm. later, right, in the process. Um, but what's remarkable among all four Gospels is how much information they share, particularly when you get to the Passion, when you get to the actual death of Jesus, resurrection. Man, it's amazing how close they all are. Mm-hmm. But none of them give us this, what we get in 52. Luke doesn't talk about it. Uh, Mark doesn't talk about it. You don't, you don't have that detail, about the tombs being opened and the bodies of the saints. The bodies of the saints, too. So this is a little different than Night of the Living Dead. When, when we th- think in terms of zombies, you've got a reanimated corpse, but does it have its mind back? Yeah. Does it really have its spirit back? No, it's this, again, otherly thing. It's embodied now. It's, it takes up a space, right? It's not non-corporal. It, it, has, it has matter to it. But so, now it's kind of just this mindless, slack jawed, mind, yeah, it's not, stumbling thing. It's not the person you knew. Their or mind an, is gone. And, and yeah, the, the concern is they will eat you, right? <laughs> They'll bite you, whatever. That probably wasn't your concern with this particular person when they were alive, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You probably weren't worried. Uh, when uh, Uncle Charles became a zombie, <laughs> he's going to bite you. But before that, before he was a zombie, you probably didn't worry about him biting you. Yeah. You know, that, that being the, the scare there is that they can turn you into one of these things. Uh, so there's this idea that it's like a living death. Here's a body that's actually passed away. Um, the functions which operate in order to keep us alive, breathing and pulse and all that stuff are gone. And, and the mind is gone as well. And it's just up walking around, right? This is similar but different. Yeah. Because you've got um, their their bodies that have passed away. They're coming from the grave. The tombs are opened, and and their actual bodies 
are coming, but they're saints now. They're, it's not just anybody that's coming out of the tombs, right? So there's this idea that um, it, these are people who are somehow recognized, at least by that community, as people that you would go seek wisdom from, mm-hmm. right? The idea that they were um, believers in Jesus, well, everything that Jesus is about to do still hasn't quite happened yet. He's actively dying on the cross, so someone who died before that did not witness the effects of his crucifixion and then resurrection, right? So this isn't saints in the sense of they were Christian, Mm -hmm. as we would say. So what does that even mean? Well, they were, obviously, they were Jewish followers, right? And um, um, we can't even necessarily say that meant that they were, like, big deals in the the Jewish uh, uh, practice of the synagogue is this the high priest are are these uh, Sadducees that came back? It just tells us they were saints, yeah. right? So what what would signify someone as a saint at that particular point? Well, at least to that community, somebody who was significant in a good way, somebody who was a source of wisdom, somebody you could trust, right? Somebody that had a a fairly good upstanding reputation in their lifetime, um, but they were recognized. And here they come walking into the city. Yeah. Right. Um, these these bodies who have woken back up again here, and it's all happening. Uh, th- they enter Jerusalem, and they they appear to many, but yet this is the only account. Right. Well, and, and I find it it's actually interesting because fifty four talks about that as well. It says um, the centurion and and those who were with them. Um, keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, um, they became very frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. They're all, and that's the thing. It's not really disclosing the number of people, but it's plenty of them at least. Yeah. Uh, and they they, they acknowledge it. Like they say, yes, this is the son of God. Um, but it says when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, I feel like that encompasses everything above. Yeah. You know, the tearing of the veil and then, uh, earthquake, splitting of the rocks, and then the people coming up out of the tombs. Well, and and well, it, interesting. You bring up the tearing of the veil wouldn't have been something that was visible to everybody. Mm-hmm. That would have been visible to anybody that was inside the the temple yeah. at that point. So, if anyone within the the Jewish temple, the Solomon's temple, right, would have been able to see that, witness that, and that was one of those places that was. Um, um, highly populated, kind of at almost all times. So uh, when Jesus dies, and it's still kind of uh, it, early in the day, relatively speaking, right? It, it's probably, what, 9 to 12 o'clock, somewhere in that range. So it's still fairly early in the day. So there would have been people in the temple at that point. Mm-hmm. That That's a time of the day when the temple would have had active people doing their thing that they do during the week of Passover at that particular time. And they are witnessing the account of the temple veil being torn. And this veil is huge. It's all made of one woven, like, in the process of, of building a, a, a garment here. It's very, very thick material, um, very heavy material, and it's like one single piece. So they're not taking several strips and kind of sewing them together. Mm-hmm. This is like a one formed uh, cloth 
but huge. And its job was to cover the Holy of Holies, the place where only the high priest could go in Mm -hmm. once a year to kind of keep that separate from the rest of the people. So everybody knew what was behind that veil, but nobody had actually seen it except the one person who's allowed to go back there once a year. Which shares some, there's some significance behind that. Yeah, because that's the seat of God, Mm -hmm. right? That's the the way that's believed. That's where they had the Ark of the Covenant. And then up on top of the Ark, they had these like angel um, uh, sculptures, so to speak, with their wings pointing towards each other. And it was believed that right between those wings at the top was what they called the mercy seat. That's where God sat, right? And he was present. So to walk into the very presence of God, um, again, could only happen this one particular time of the year. Only the high priest could do it, yada, yada, right? So it was a very set-apart space. But in front of that is this huge curtain that you could see from the other side, right? From the outside, you could at least see the curtain. You couldn't see what was behind it. But so here at the seat of God, this temple curtain, which is massive, several stories high, is torn. And it's torn from the top down, right? It's not torn bottom up. In order to do that, it's as if the hands of God have to grab this sucker and rip it from the top down as his own presence leaves the Holy of Holies. No easy feat. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of theological significance of things that are happening here at the moment when Jesus um, yields up his spirit. Well, that's, that's interesting, you know, because, uh, yeah, there's significance behind that. But I wonder, I wonder if there's significance behind all of the things happening or if some of them are just byproducts of the sheer power or spiritual force that is being let out. You know what I mean? So, for instance, I, I don't know what the significance of these, um, you know, these uh, saints or, or holy men that are being raised from the dead. What is the significance of that? Because yeah. um, I feel like if it was super significant, the other Gospels would actually have it in there. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I wonder if this is just like a, a backlash of force that just goes out and hits these bodies and you know, wakes them up. What we don't have is um, their testimony, how long they stayed alive at that mm-hmm. point, because I, I think the suggestion would be that at when the dust settles, so mm-hmm. to speak, on all of this, that they weren't still walking around the city after yeah. the fact, that this was a very, very kind of a short period. Um, but um, uh, if I had to picture it, and again, soft lead pencil, whatever, I'm using my own imagination in this instance, that I'm thinking as as these people who would have been recognized and respected mm-hmm. are walking into the city, that they are identifying what has happened, right? Just like the centurion does, this was the Son of God. I'm wondering if they're almost congregating toward the cross itself with their hands pointing out saying it as they walk yeah and you're seeing somebody you're like i knew him i studied with him or that guy's missing an eyeball yeah that's (laughs) that's so and so that i loved and trusted yeah and yeah now here he comes missing an eyeball his jaw is like half disconnected definitely not looking so good but he's he would be like witnessing to the identity of who jesus is yeah or who jesus 
you know, in that point as he's dying. Well, and that's thing, it doesn't cross. it doesn't give us a whole lot. You know, like yeah. it doesn't it doesn't thing, say that. It just says saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So it doesn't say people that had been dead for um and forty years. Yeah. It could have been a couple days before. We don't we don't know. So the image is not very clear, but it is clear what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think I think part of that too, some of this stuff again, theologically what's going on, um when when Jesus dies, there's there's a point there where God and Jesus, you have this eternal um, community of Father, Son, and Spirit from before time passed that's always existed. Uh, there has always been this ongoing relationship that uh, of of community there, and I think that's the moment that for Jesus was the hardest. Uh, I think that's what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what he's really wrestling with when he says, Father, let this pass, this cup pass from me. Mm-hmm. Isn't so much the, the physical abuse he's going to receive, the whipping and all of that other stuff, isn't uh, being mocked by these people and made fun of. Um, and it's not even the fact that at some point his body's going to stop breathing and he's going to die or the pain of being up there on the cross, but I think it's this moment. I think more than anything else, that's what gave Jesus pause and what he wrestled with there in the garden was this idea of we're not going to be in community. We're not going to be in fellowship. Mm -hmm. That fellowship is actually going to be broken. Uh, And I think that's what happens in this moment is that God actually kind of turns his face away from Jesus as he dies in order for Jesus to take on the sins of humanity. Yeah. God can't be in the presence of sin. You know, that's kind of how this process of, of Jesus atoning for the sins, what's going on theologically is, is the greater weight of all of this. But I think when God turns his back, so to speak, on Jesus and has to look away, he's kind of all the things in created order that require his hand at work to maintain, right, to hold the world, so to speak, together, start to unravel, right? So if God's not actually holding the world together, actively holding the world together all the time, then we'd be seeing earthquakes all the time. We'd be seeing the sun going dark all the time. Like all the stuff that they're witnessing in that is a testimony to who Jesus was, but I think it's also happening as a result of the fact that God himself isn't there holding creation together. Yeah. And that's one of the things that he does. When he has to turn his back, he releases that, and things start to unravel, so to speak. Reality starts yeah, bending. Yeah, exactly. Um, so thank God he comes back and pulls it all back together again once Jesus has done what he needs to do. Right, It's not a long-term effect, so to speak. Um, how wild yeah yeah how, how wild to, to witness something like that it's no wonder these people truly said truly this is the son of god like they their whole everything is just flipping upside down everything a pagan, that they know. A pagan <laughs> says that yeah a guy whose job it was to stand there and make sure this guy dies yeah. and that he suffers in the process because that's what crucifixion was is kind of like the lowest way you could kill somebody and make them suffer yeah. and make it real clear if you're an enemy of Rome, this is what you get. Yeah. Right. They, these guys were professionals. Example. Professionals at their job of killing people, and here this pagan, right, who 
you would think couldn't care less about this particular person that they were crucifying. He was doing his job. Well, it, actually, it wasn't just happen. one person. That's the thing. It says, and, uh, those, that were and those were with them. Keeping guard. Yeah, they see it, and they all became very frightened, and they all came to this conclusion that truly this was the Son of God. Yeah. And it's not just changing the opinion of one person. This is changing a lot of opinions of the onlookers. Anybody who is seeing the the rocks splitting and the people coming up out of the graves and yeah. things that they have. I mean, I probably would too. <laughs> well, in that testimony too, to the identifying Jesus as the son of God in the process, um, he, he even in his ministry doesn't come out and, and say that like just straight up, Hey, I'm the son of God. Right. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen so often. He refers to himself as the son of man, mm-hmm. uh, which is a messianic title. Um, he'll refer to himself as Messiah. Well, that had like political implications mm-hmm. as a title, right? That's like king, so to speak, um, or or anointed one is what Messiah actually means. But you were anointed to be the king, so you know that's essentially more of claiming uh, claiming a, a a military power, you know, by by saying you're Messiah. He did things like um, told people they were. Uh, uh, forgiven of their sins, right? Now, that's something only God can do. Yeah. All of these things kind of got him in trouble, but he doesn't come out um, blatantly very often to say, hey, I am the Son of God. He's identified as the Son of God um, really objectively and clearly uh, at his baptism. The sky opens up, and a voice from heaven says it. Yeah. And then again at his transfiguration where once again that voice comes from heaven to say, you know, this is my son. Uh, so in this instance, where's the voice from heaven? If God's turned his back, he's not there to say, this is my son. You have a pagan saying it instead. Yeah. Right? That 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 evidence has been made clear there. So that, that kind of uh, final confession um, that's coming from, and we don't know what happens to these centurions too. You would believe if that was their confession – Truly, this was the Son of God. Did that change their life? What happened? We don't know. Yeah, we don't know if that was like the end of their um, uh, being, uh, um, so to speak, first and foremost followers of Caesar. Yeah, right. Because that's if if you're going to make that confession, well, then you just became an enemy. Yeah, so to speak, you're on the most wanted list. Right. And and we don't know that that necessarily happened in this case either. We don't. There, that'd be a, another story. What happened to the people who were guarding Jesus, <laughs> and and how did that affect their lives? It, that would take a little too much effort. I well, think. Yeah, well, we there's just no. I evidence. don't feel like. Yeah, I would yeah. say I don't feel like traveling you yeah. know, across the universe to go find the answers at the right, moment. But. Right. Right. Well, in closing, um, thank you all for listening. Uh, I feel like, yeah, we've, we've kind of uncovered a lot. Um, yeah, by any means, I would not uh, start, just because it's in the Bible, I would not start trying to find out how to contact the dead. You're probably not going to get a hold of them. I'm just That's telling you that. Bad, bad <laughs> plan. Um, but, yeah, we've got, we've got stuff in the Bible about it. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, I urge you to crack open your Bibles and read some of this stuff. Um, find some interesting topics. And look, we're, we're in the market of questions. You know, at this point, we want listener questions. Uh, feel free to shoot us an email or a Facebook message. Uh, the email is thesilentplanetpodcast at gmail.com. 
Um, we're going to spend, you know, as soon as we start getting questions in, we're going to spend the last little bit of these episodes just answering these questions that we get. You can ask anything from what color is the sky to um, what was Jesus' favorite thing to put on toast. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll see if we can get the answers. Uh, in in so much as we can give a response, maybe more than an answer. Cause yeah. Yeah. Sometimes Some, we wouldn't sometimes, have. Yeah. There's just not, there's just not an answer, but hopefully we can give a, a somewhat intelligent response to make you feel like that the, it's not the issue of finding dignity in the question. Yeah. Right. And if it's somebody who's genuinely like, Hey, I've always had a problem with this particular aspect of the Christian faith, or maybe somebody who's a skeptic from the outside, but mm-hmm. willing to ask a real question, not just like, Hey, I'm going to throw out the, um, something dumb here, but not, not expect a Did response. Jesus wear socks with sandals. Yeah. 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 <laughs> real discussion material we're, we're all about. So, um, yeah, give us those questions. Hopefully it will inform our discussion that way. And we can try and respond to that in a way that, uh, honors our faith, honors Christ and, and, uh, uh, shows that we're coming at this. Um, well, we're all coming at being a part of the story that God's telling through history, but doing it in a way that uses our full intellect. Yeah. Right. We, we don't want to, set aside our intellect when we deal with our matters of faith, right? Yeah. That's the goal here. So. Well, and then that's, there's another part of that. It's your no question. I'll say, yes, there are absurd questions. Obviously you could ask, but no real legitimate question is too absurd. And there's really not many questions that we can't fully respond to or can't try to find a full answer to. But um, that's the thing is there. Once again, the misconception with the Bible is that it's just a happy story. Well, yes, there's a really happy main narrative to it. There's a good main narrative, but there's a lot of bloodshed, and there's a lot of things that happen in the Bible that that do raise questions. You know, how can God let this happen, or why would God order this and that? Um, That We can find some legit answers to, and we can justify in some, some form or another, so... Um, anyways, yeah, ask away. Uh, once again, that's the silent planet podcast at gmail.com. Um, we are on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio. I think something called breaker. I don't know enough about podcast platforms. We've got like eight out there. So, um, if you enjoy this, uh, like, and follow, um, send this to your friends and family. We appreciate the support. And, uh, once again, I'm Thomas and I'm Sam, and this has been the silent planet podcast. We will see you next week.